Hey listeners, Three Things is back, but we're doing something a little bit different, again. It's still two people, 20 minutes, and three things. It's still conversations with Rick's friends, but instead of rolling out full seasons, we're just going to start releasing them as they happen. Today, we've got a conversation with inventor, humanitarian, producer, entrepreneur, and overall interesting person, Mick Ebeling. Mick founded Not Impossible Labs, an award-winning technology incubator dedicated to, quote, doing things that can't be done. They're hackers and programmers who look for unsolvable problems in the world and then crowdsource creative ways to solve them. This is Three Things with Mick Ebeling. So welcome to our podcast. Uh, We are going to talk about one of my favorite topics with probably somebody who's doing more about it than anybody else in the country. Uh, This topic is all about removing the expiration date of hope. So... Mick, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. All right. You have a saying that I love, which is, if not now, when? And if not me, who? Where did that come from? Uh, That's one of those sayings that has been out in the ether for many years. Someone told me uh, a while ago that there was like a a famous rabbi that said it and it was appropriated by someone else. So it's one of those kind of collective consciousness things. Um, I just think that there is this there's this thing that you as human beings and i think now even more than ever we have become bystanders or observers or recorders of things we'll record things happening or film things happening or talk about things happening as opposed to just rolling up your sleeves and actually doing it and i think that when a lot of the things that we deal with at non impossible labs is about seeing things that we consider to be absurd those are that's a word that we right. usually say okay that's absurd it's absurd that people aren't eating but we have plenty of food it's absurd that people who are deaf can't experience music the same way that people who can't hear it's absurd that someone who's paralyzed can't draw again and it's, and we say all right how do we fix that and then we we dogpile on that to solve it and the immediacy of doing it is this is that principle of not now when if not me who because if you just wait you're going to be waiting forever for to, for permission for someone to give it to you so you might as well start because if nothing else your failed attempts could inspire other people to start something and that starts to move the ball down the field so your first absurdity was uh, a project called the i writer tell us how that came about uh, I mean, like most things in life that are that are beautiful, sometimes it's accidents, you know. And I accidentally had my date night with my wife hijacked by a friend of mine who took us to a gallery event. This gallery event was for a paralyzed graffiti artist who had ALS. We were blown away by his story. We decided that my company was going to give money to his foundation. When I gave him the check, I said, what are you going to use the money for? And they said, we just want to be able to talk to my brother because now we just are able to talk to him through a piece of paper mm. with the alphabet on it. And I said, D- you don't have one of those Stephen Hawking machines? They said, no, that's if you've got money or insurance and we don't have either. And I said, all right, that's ridiculous. So we jumped on it with a bunch of hackers and makers. And uh, just, Was this you as a kid? Were you like always hacking away at stuff? Uh, I wasn't really following rules as a kid. You know, I can relate. And and then I got then I went to the Air Force to play basketball and that will either break you or make you. And so I turned into even more of a rule breaker there because I had it was just a better, bigger, better, more stringent system to beat. And I beat it really well and and got in a lot of trouble, too. But but (laughs) so anyway, that's kind of how that led to that that mentality. But then we just made this device to help um, tempt. And the crazy thing was we made it. And then all of a sudden we, and we just did it for him. It was a goof. We didn't do it. There was no strategy. There was no, and then we woke up one day and it was time magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. It's part of the permanent collection at the MoMA. And we looked around and said, 
hang on, hang on, what, what just happened here? We just wanted to help this one dude and this thing went bigger than anything we'd ever imagined. And we're like, all right, well, maybe we should keep doing this. And that was the start of Not Impossible Labs. And did you pivot what you were doing to then focus mostly on this? Yeah, it wasn't like a hard pivot. It was a gradual pivot, but it was a pivot where I, I was in the world of animation and design and storytelling. I was a classic, you know, Los Angeles producer. And I just, my wife said we would go to parties and I had just done some of the biggest projects in Hollywood. And she said, we go to these parties and you don't talk about any of those projects. All you talk about is the iWriter. And I said, really? And she said, yes, yeah, should I, are we, are we changing? Like, <laughs> do I need to stop yeah, shopping? Yeah, I was like, exactly. Do I need to put a little bit of money away? Do I need to do And I'm like, nah, you're ridiculous. And she ignored me and I'm glad she did. And, and soon we just shifted off to, to everything being non-impossible labs. All right, Project Daniel was, I believe, your second project. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that one. Project Daniel, again, the absurdity was, I was out to dinner with a friend. He told me this story about this incredible doctor who was helping people over in this war-torn region called Sudan. Went home after dinner, read the story. Part of the story was this guy's having to perform amputations. Why is he performing amputations? Because of the, the bombing that's going on there. It talks about one particular case, one particular boy who had both of his arms blown off in a, in a, in a bombing accident. And he said when this 12-year-old boy woke up, if I could die, I would because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. Mm. And while I was reading that story, 40 feet down the hallway was where my 12-year-old uh, slept. And I couldn't fathom my son wanting to be dead, any kid wanting to be dead, not to be a pain in the ass to their mom and dad. So one of our mantras, and this is an underlying mantra, is commit and then figure it out. And so that's what we did with the iWriter. And that's what we do with this. And so same thing, I invited a bunch of crazy people to our house. My wife and kids and I moved out, they all moved in. We started to hack and make and we launched, um, everything went wrong. And that, that's a key part to the story. Right, right. Nothing goes according to plan. Never. Nothing goes according to plan. But eventually I went and launched the world's first 3D printing prosthetic lab that allowed him to feed himself for the first time in two years. And how many people now uh, well, here's the have benefited from this? Here's the beautiful thing. When you release something open source, when you just put mm -hmm. it out into right. the world, right. there's no tracking, there's no measurement. You know, It right. can inspire people to do the same thing, inspire people to do the other thing. So we don't know. And if you search online, you'll see dozens and dozens of 3D printed prosthetics and we see ourselves as playing a role in that evolution. Yeah. We weren't yeah. the only ones, but we played a role in a very high profile role in, in telling the story of basically this dumb guy from Venice Beach who got you know motivated and inspired to go over there and I did it and that kind of goes back to the same thing. I had no business doing it, but for the fact that if not now, when, if not me, who? So do you walk around just looking at absurdities because there are so many of them. What, what's that movie? I see dead people. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I do see a lot of absurdities and it is kind of like a schizophrenic existence where I'm just got all the voices in my yeah, head. I'm like, like, that's <laughs> absurd, that's absurd, that's absurd. I'm like, oh, shut up, shut up. I have to go to my son's football game, you know? Um, so yeah, you see them, but I think one of the things, so we Not Impossible is a for-profit company. Yeah. And it's intentional because we don't think that doing good in the world should be judged by a tax code, right? That's, the IRS should decide whether or not you do good or not. You should do good because you feel like it's a good thing. And I think the thing that about this is I want, although we are a business, we see ourselves as a movement because I hope from mm. people listening to this podcast or today, you know, I'm super grateful that you guys invited me to talk today. I hope that the, the people here who hear what we're up to, I hope that they go, wait a second, 
if not now, when, if not me, who they, they go out and do stuff. Cause that's how you, you actually make change in the world. When real people, the people of your company, the people of any company say, I got to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to wait for governments or bureaucracies or institutions to allow me, permit me or bless me to do it. Just screw it. I'm going to go do it. I love it. So how many projects more or less are you guys working on at the same time? So it's, it, this goes back to my days as a producer, you would have different projects in different stages. You have some things that are conceptual, some things that are writing, some things that are pre-production, production, post-production post and release. Right. So we'll have various stages of those, but right now we probably have about eight different absurdities that we're tackling. Some of them are like, like I have no, we're so far over our skis. We have no idea how we're going to pull Can them off. Can you tell me one? Um, yeah, one of them is Alzheimer's and dementia, right? How do you address, we ultimately, we call ourselves we're, we're an incubator. We incubate technology right. that helps people. We call it technology for the sake of humanity. And so my grandmother, uh, and grandfather both had dementia and Alzheimer's and, and this absurdity came into us because what a lot of times we will do is we will go to companies and I'll, I'll get a chance to, to talk to them. And then afterwards, we'll partner with that company and we'll send out a survey to all the employees and we'll ask them two questions. What's absurd in your life or in the world? And then second, who is your one? If you could solve it for one person, right. who would it be? And so this was an absurdity that came back to us and uh, we're tackling it for this one girl who, um, it's a crazy story, but she had, uh, do you remember the movie 50 First Dates or Memento? Yes. Where her memory reset, their memory resets? Yes. She has a situation like that. And so we're tackling, how do you help her uh, have a, a, a digital ability to have a memory? So we're kind of creating a digital memory for her that's cued with sound and imagery and um, just data that you can pull from her environment. And then you also provide that to her caretakers as well. So you create this, it's almost like a digital crux or, or, or crutch or right, support right, system. Right, like so that there's- folding around her life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that she can, can interact with it. And we're, I mean, what it could do in terms of providing quality of life for caretakers and people who have right, this, right. this problem in their lives is, is immense, but it's gonna be intense. I gotta but. share with you that my mom who's 79 uh, has fairly advanced Alzheimer's now. I'm so, really sorry. Uh, no, it's, um, you know, she's lived a great life and she's not in pain and we're lucky that we can put good care around her to support sure. my dad. I, but it makes me feel for our others that don't have that privilege. Right. And uh, so I'm glad you're working on that and we can talk about it off uh, offline and let's see let's if there's a way we can work together. Let's definitely do so. That's great. I know that you just said earlier in the conversation that it's about starting a movement and there's a saying that a movement starts when you get a follower, otherwise you're a lunatic. Right. Right. So, <laughs> um, but you also think about, you, you talk about, you know, remind, not inspire, which yeah. is a little bit opposite of that. You explain that to us. So I believe that every single person on this planet has within them the ability to succeed, excel, transform and create, right? And though our life and the conditions around our life and the circumstances that happen beat us down or put us in a rut or, or maybe have, have beat out our confidence and now make us feel unconfident. And so I don't see my job on this planet when I talk about non-impossible or I talk about real people doing real things to, to help other people. I don't see myself as someone, in fact, I hate when people are like, oh, you're an inspirational speaker. I'm like, Ugh, no, I'm not. I just remind people that they have that potential already and that somewhere along the way they forgot it. And if, if my stories of 
myself or any of my ragtag group of hackers and makers and misfit geniuses that, that I'm blessed to assemble and kind of work with, who I am always much more dumb than they are. Right, always, right, always, right. always. I know that feeling. That if, they, if, if those stories can inspire them to say, wait a second, maybe I can do something, then that's that whole concept of remind versus inspire. And it, it sounds like you're focused mostly on absurdities that um, for people that really can't help themselves. Because there's a lot of others that you could tackle. How do you prioritize what, what is worth putting effort into? So that's a, that's a tough one because back to the whole seeing, seeing them everywhere, you ha we do have to choose, which is another reason why we want other people to see what we're doing uh -huh. and say we can do this too because then that's how you can scale it. It, ha it goes One of our, our underlying principles is help one, help many. Right. Mm. So we don't solve when, when we start our initiatives, we don't say, how do we solve a problem for all the people with ALS? We solved it for Tempt and we and then did it powerfully around him and then told that story around him. So that story of one has the ability to spread. And now you can see it or your kids can see it or someone can see it and, and, and relate to him as a human being. And that's really, I think, how we choose things is it does it have is this does is there a need? Is there an absurdity? Is there a true need that can, can help people? But who is the one person that that story of that one person can inspire other people to, to go out and try to make a change as well? Is there also an angle as to who can scale it? Like who can, you know, is there a company that does R&D and whatever the type of solution you're providing that can say, okay, yeah, you just gave us a proof concept. We can now build it at scale, or is that not part of the plan? No, that's part. That's definitely part of our plan, and that's what we've built as we're getting into the second chapter of not impossible. The first chapter is always just figuring out what the hell you're doing. Yeah. As we're getting to that, where our partnerships that we've created with companies that can actually take our initial prototypes and then actually take them to scale. That's what we're doing with the thing that I mentioned to you with Parkinson's and the thing that we're doing around the um, vibrotactile sensor for for music for the deaf and and different things like that. That's what leads us to be able to scale. So has there ever been something where you commit, you go figure it out, and then you figure out something that you were not meaning to figure out? <laughs> yeah. And I think that if you look at it, if you think of it like a, like a pebble in a bucket that, or, or you know, the, the ripple effect on solving one absurdity and what can happen from that, it kind of maybe a pebble in a bucket, it's more like a spider. Like it just kind of spreads different things. Right. And so there's one thing that we're working on that we saw the absurdity of how the deaf, someone who's deaf can experience music. And all that happens is, and your sound engineer is going to hate this, but if someone's listening to music, all they hear is this. Right. Right. No matter if there's highs or lows or whatever, right. that they're just getting that low end sound. Well, we said, all right, that's stupid. How, we, if someone, if someone's, uh, the only thing that's not working for someone's deaf is their eardrums not working, which is the translator to the brain. Right. Then let's get, let's hack around that eardrum and let's go straight to the brain. So we figured out a way to break music into its separate parts. Uh, so different tracks in a song like drums, vocals, bass, guitars, etc. And then we project that wirelessly to wearables, wristbands, ankle bands, a vest, so that the tracks themselves are vibrating against the skin and using the skin as the eardrum. So now the skin is the conductor to the brain. And we're just we're basically just taking a detour around the ears going straight to the brain. So we did that. The deaf community lost their mind. The hearing community lost their mind. They're like, holy, this is the way that that everyone's going to experience music in the future. Not just people who can't hear, 
but also people who can hear because now you've got you basically your brain's getting hit twice it's this wow. it's euphoric and we're just it's wow, like surround this is, sound yeah this is amazing <laughs> this is amazing and also there's this whole thing and we can geek out about this but there's also this thing called neuroplasticity your brain expands its ability our brain is used like so minimally but as now you create this correlation of sound right. and vibration on the skin your brain starts to create that understanding wow. of like oh that's that's what that sounds like but it's not sounding it's feeling so you can then take the sound away and quote hear the song still because that's your brain crazy. has learned that right yeah. so and that's just the kind of the beautiful thing about our brain well along the way guess what happened we figured out that the thing that we created to help the deaf and I'm going to be intentionally vague about this because we're going through the FDA process right now. But there's applications of what we're doing there with vibrations against the skin and how we modulate that and how we conduct that that actually helps to stop or prevent or assuade uh, symptoms in the Parkinson's community. And so we got to witness people be positively affected by this and have their quality of life returned and have a sense of hope because now this thing that they thought that they were down this this basically this chasm of despair for the rest of their life having to be afflicted by this and those symptoms only get worse now there was this reprieve from that and it gave them a little bit of hope in life. awesome i just realized you and i have a lot in common we both love hoops um uh, we both are a little crazy we both you know kind of get energy from others and trying to do something and, and do something for others there's a big difference between us. What's that? About 100 points of IQ. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not true. Not, not true at all. All right, 80, but there, there's a significant number of IQ. Not true at all. No. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, this is so cool, dude. So, Mick, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I think life is to be lived with no regrets. The things that we ultimately regret is what we don't do. Yep. Right? We, 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 we regret when we are teenagers not asking that girl out or when we're an adult is not you know yeah. taking a risk or when we're older you know later in life not telling people what we want to tell them so how do you get better i believe that the second you think you have reached the pinnacle that you've got it on you've got it just on dial yeah that's that's your demise so i think that if you constantly believe that you are a pupil and a student of the game, then you will always progress because there's always something to learn. So there's, how do you do that? I just never, I never ever let myself think that I've ever reached a pinnacle, you know, which sometimes, you know, like people that love me, my wife will be like, can we just celebrate this, this goal, this right. thing that I want? So I'm like, yeah, but I almost feel like it's a, a shark. If you stop swimming and you die, you have to kind of keep progressing. So I think that you have to have a, a, a bit of humility yeah. in your, in your world that knowing Look, let me, I'll t this is a, this is a crazy story. So when I turned uh, 40, yeah. I went and uh, I went on a big bike ride over in Spain to kind of, cause I went every birthday, I always do something really athletic to prove that I'm alive. Right. right, right. And so I'm on this hill. You don't want to age. No. Well, it's almost <laughs> like, I just, I just want to like, it's not even like a fear of ages more. It is like a grasping of life. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm on this bike and I'm biking and the tour de France was happening at the same time. So when I would go back every day after a bike ride, I would see the tour de France and, and I was just like, ah, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm seeing myself as like this incredible bike rider and I'm going and this thought popped into my head and it was, you know, I, maybe, maybe I could ride in the Tour of France. Like maybe I, 
I don't no, know. That's crazy. Maybe no, no, but <laughs> but maybe I could be a competitive rider, and it just entered my mind. The moment, right. the moment that that entered my mind, this guy, who was maybe 127 years old, right, flowing beard, <laughs> cut off jeans, crappy t-shirts or crappy shoes, an even crappier bike, went. And I and I just to embellish had a glass of wine and a cigarette in his hand. Right, right. Went flying by me on his bike. Right. And I watched it, and it took a second, and then I almost crashed my bike from laughing. Right. It was right, literally right. like God or the universe was like, "Yo, just you had, you, hey, you had your own absurdity." Yeah. He's like, "Yo, <laughs> check yourself, brother. Check yourself. <laughs> just check yourself. You're just a dude on a bike." And Grandpa just blew by you like you were standing still. So right. I feel like when you have That's that smart. that humility in your life, and you realize. You just, you just, it lets you one progress as a human being right. and, and towards mastery, but also it gives you the ability to kind of see the, the blessings that everybody else has to offer you. Just to close out, if we, uh, if we see each other, you know, kind of towards the end of our lives, you know, let's say that hopefully we both leave uh, another 50 years and, mm -hmm. and we have a glass of wine and we close out life. Um, what do you hope your life stands for? Uh, a, a belief that people have the power to make the change without being blessed or fortified by any other institution. That we as human beings, there is a power to the proletariat. There is a power to the people when they say, we can make this change ourselves." Margaret Mead said, never believe that a few caring people can't change the world. Indeed, that's all who ever have. If people truly realize that they have the ability to move that dial and to bring it back to kind of what we do at Not Impossible, help one, help many, that if you can change some one person's life, then you've left the world a better place. Uh, so if you and I are drinking our lemonade that we spike with a little yeah, bit of yeah, Tito's, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that we look back and we're like, did, did someone along the way experience us in some capacity and then go change someone's life in which if that's the case then you can take me off into the to either up or down depending yeah, on where, where it's gonna where, go yeah yeah listen i uh, this has been a lot of fun and i look forward to continuing this in a different setting but i also believe to close this out that to whom much is given much is expected and i think you and i have an incredible responsibility to try to do something for others so thank you for the inspiration thank you my friend all right cheers Thanks, Mick. That was amazing. I feel like you're a brother from another mother. Here are the three things I took from our conversation. First is that most things in life are accidental. You have to commit and then figure it out. I have always seen that ignorance is perhaps our biggest bliss. Not knowing enough gives us the power to create. Get in the game. Do something about it. Number two, I love what Mick said about good should not be defined by a tax code. Not only do we as individuals have an opportunity to make a change, but corporations have a responsibility to make our communities and our employees our main priority. And number three, and he puts it beautifully, we become recorders versus doers. We look at absurd things and walk by them and do nothing about it. Everyone can move the dial and perhaps that is the ultimate purpose of life. If we help one, we perhaps are helping many. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>